Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from the people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier, and along with Richard Johnson, we are joined by our man in the know, Sporting Intelligence's Nick Harris. Today, our attentions turn to the current Premier League champions. But to get to the smooth waters of John Henry, Liverpool fans had to endure the reign of two men between 2007 and 2010, whose names still strike fear and anger into the hearts of all Reds now. Yes, this is a time when Liverpool, the 1920 Premier League champions, only 10 years ago flirted with administration and a potential nine-point penalty. It's pretty much inconceivable, to be honest, that the club was dragged through the mud and built on the back of these promises to take the club to new levels. This is the Hicks and Gillette era. But before we get into that, if you listen to this, please leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and why not recommend it to a friend. Also, while you're at it, give us a follow on Twitter. We're at Sporth and follow Nick Harris at Sporting Intel. Nick, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Yes, I'm well. Rich, we have uncovered some unbelievable tales and today is no different. Yeah, I think this story with Hicks and Gillette, again, is pretty mad to think about considering, you know, how big Liverpool Club are and how big they've always been and the success that they're achieving now could have potentially uh, uh, have not happened if... Um, these guys didn't actually uh, eventually end up selling up or potentially it could have happened sooner. Right, Nick, let's get into it. Um, before we get to Hicks and Gillette, how did we get to that mess? So the club, Liverpool, have been owned for many decades by David Moores of the Littlewoods Retail Empire and him and his family had controlled the club for decades. But they were getting sort of into the mid-noughties and thinking that in the new landscape of modern Premier League football where... Roman Abramovich was the owner of Chelsea, a billionaire, and where the Glazer family of Tampa had bought Manchester United and were trying to squeeze all sorts of money out of them. So there were people investing and 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 really sort of taking football clubs into a new realm of of money making and internationalisation. More sort of decided that maybe their family business wasn't really the right people to take it forward so it began looking for investment eventually in 2007 he sold to two american businessmen george gillette and and his business partner or somebody he knew who became his business partner in liverpool a guy called tom hicks and when it all went wrong and it went wrong quite badly for three years david moores wrote to an open letter really to to liverpool fans but through the medium of the sports editor of the Times, a guy called Tony Evans, who was a big Liverpool fan, sort of explaining why he'd sold it to them, why he regretted it, and why he now liked them in the politest way possible to get the hell out of the club and let someone else take it over. And this letter that he wrote was pretty extraordinary. He said, in effect, that he'd tried to sell the club twice before, once to a company in Dubai, Dubai International Capital, which was being put together by Amanda Staveley, a familiar name to many football fans. I mean, if your football club hasn't been subject to an Amanda Staveley takeover, then you probably don't support a football club anywhere near the top of English football. But Amanda tried to take over uh, Liverpool and 
David Moore's found out they planned to sort of take it over and get out. They had a seven-year exit strategy and it wasn't going to be the right thing with the club, so he didn't go with that. He also told fans in this letter that um, he had a massive offer from Thaksin Shinawatra, the controversial Prime Minister of Thailand. He was controversial for, among other things, extrajudicial killings of drug dealers. So he felt that that would be unethical to sell Liverpool to Thaksin. And Thaksin went and bought Manchester City instead. Manchester City owners at the time didn't have any of the qualms that David Moores did. Also in this letter, he said that he knew that George Gillette was a, a good guy. George Gillette owned the NHL hockey team, the Montreal Canadiens. He, he was obviously passionate about them. He had a successful record as a as a team owner of that successful sports franchise. He felt that there was a really good blend of uh, knowledge and passion for sport in Gillette. What he didn't pay much attention to at the time was that Gillette had had a billion dollar bankruptcy at one point in his career and didn't actually have the money to do the takeover. And in order to do the takeover, he ended up having to sort of go into partnership with Tom Hicks, who was a guy whose business empire was built around sort of leveraging. That means borrowing against the assets of businesses. I think he was known as the leveraging king or similar. And David Moores didn't really know much about Tom Hicks. And in this letter, he says he's never used a computer in his life and he doesn't know how to Google Tom Hicks. So he hadn't bothered to sort of do the proper due diligence, perhaps into Tom Hicks's aspect. So this letter, it's an extraordinary thing of how he ended up selling to these two guys. He liked Gillette. He trusted him that Hicks would be good. And he didn't realise that they were not necessarily as have the, have the money that they said they were going to have to to take the club on. And that yeah. in actual fact, they ended up, in effect, doing a leverage buyout, which is exactly what they said they weren't going to do. <laughs> so that's how we got to the point of them taking over the club. I think what's interesting as well about David Moores is that obviously he owned Liverpool for a long time. You know, I think he was a fan, you know, firstly. And, and you know, he compared himself even in this letter to the likes of Jack Walker, you know, in terms of like this like family style funding of, uh, of of clubs and football. I think he's really candid in this in this open letter to the fans because he, he clearly had a number of regrets. And I think it was within, to be fair to him, it seemed with all best intentions uh, although clearly maybe some of his due diligence was slightly lacking, uh, he seemed to care about who took over the club. These are some quotes that he said uh, when the takeover was happening. Um, he said, I'm handing this club uh, on into safe hands and this is not someone coming over just to make a quick book. I've <laughs> definitely made the right decision. <laughs> Which again is like, I think it's easy for us to look at his open letter and again pick some holes in it. But it's clear that he was trying to at least think about like making sure the club was going to be safe and be able to be built on steady foundations going forward. Nick, do you buy that though? Because like even going through the letter and obviously with the whole ethics around taxing to Noatra and everything like that, and obviously he's done his due diligence there. One of the guys has had a billion pounds bankruptcy which you wouldn't have to do too much scratching under the surface to find that out, surely. Yeah, I mean, on on that, I think there's a different ethos in American business where, you know, having a bankruptcy, even a big one, is just something that does happen. I mean, George Gillette was a successful businessman. You know, he lost a load of money. He sort of made some more money. I think David Moores did have the best. He clearly was Liverpool through and through, and mm. he he had rejected other offers that he felt were unsavoury or unethical and that he believed that you know Gillette was a good guy with the best intentions he didn't know basically and nor could he really have prevented what happened because if they were coming up with the money to buy the club then he's no longer responsible personally for the fact that they could then messed it up or 
put a load of debt onto the club as a result of the takeover. I mean, it was a bad situation, but if he was going to sell the club, once you've made the decision to sell, there's not really very much that he can do to dictate how they run it afterwards. Fair play to David Moore's for actually like coming out and writing this letter and saying, like, I made a mistake and yeah. these are things I've said. I, I, do you know, you're not convinced? I think there's a lot of... this letter is to me, Rich, is just shut... I imagine it was written, Nick, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time when the Gillette and Hicks that was blowing up and they wanted him out and, and then it's like, well, how does this happen? David Moore's and he's just yeah. trying to cover his own back just to keep himself... Possibly. Not to cover his own back, but to sort of say, look, this is, this is my explanation. This is my side of the story. Yes, I might have, you know, I could have been more careful. We shouldn't perhaps have put our trust in Gillette so much. But he does say in this letter how he did go on to do all sorts of due diligence from sort of independent companies as well as Gillette. And, and also, I think the, the other thing that the letter did is it basically was a message to Gillette and Hicks to say, please, please leave. You know, you bought this club effectively under false pretenses. You've laden it with debt. It's not going where you said it was. You haven't done what you've said you were going to do. Please get out now and let someone else who can take it forward, take it forward. So that was the other purpose of the letter. So we've got David Moores doing the due diligence and, and sort of getting this advice that he was uh, supposed to be getting. Liverpool gets gets taken over. A couple of near misses, like you say, with DIC. But then ultimately, with Gillette and Hicks coming in, there was probably a bit of excitement at the start because they promised no debt was going to be involved in the takeover. Sort of clearly something that they'd seen to distance themselves from the Glazers and Man United that had happened uh, recently down in, in 2005. They sort of, I think, were hyping up fans a little bit because they said a shovel would be in the ground of Stanley Park in 60 days, promising a new stadium being built. Although it's got the classic hallmarks here of these owners that we see who come in and make it all about them and make some huge, big, sort of whimsical promises. They, they did manage to sort of generate a little bit of excitement. Yeah, I mean, they were seen as rich Americans who were going to give the manager the transfer funds to go and buy players, invest in the club and take them back to where they thought that Liverpool and Liverpool fans belonged. This was 2007, you know, it had been a long time since Liverpool had won their last title. You know, fans were excited. I think there's even, you know, you can go on YouTube and and find um, fans mobbing Hicks and Gillette in the street and there was a lot of excitement that, that they were going to do things the right way and they were making all the right promises. But what wasn't known, what was going on behind the scenes, which was the fact that how they were planning to laden the club with debt to finance this takeover that they'd done that the fans weren't aware of. And it was obviously that that became a problem, which meant that not only did they ever get the stadium off the ground, but ultimately they didn't invest in the way that they said they were going to. And they came to a crisis point uh, for various reasons, including the financial crash of 2008, which affected their businesses, that it was a sort of perfect storm of bad things that ultimately led them to a point with Liverpool in absolute crisis by 2010. So yes, there was excitement, but they hadn't been honest about what they were doing. One of the interesting things, Nick, as well, I was pulling out from, from your notes as well, is obviously through, through that positivity as well, they soon got rid of that by starting to call um, Jürgen Klinsmann as their uh, next manager, which now I sort of scoff at, but back at the time, he was sort of like a one of those young and exciting mm, managers. Hot property. Yeah. The thing is, they disagreed about everything, really, Hicks and Gillette. They disagreed about the stadium. They disagreed about the manager. In terms of Klinsman, one of them went behind the other's back without actually telling the other one who they were going for. So they were doing things without telling each other. Hicks, it was, who began courting Klinsman in late 2007 
something that he revealed to the public in January 2008, which was obviously fairly horrifying for many fans of Rafa Benitez, who was obviously a club legend, not to mention Benitez himself. It looks like it was a PR-driven decision. And then Hicks obviously realised what a terrible error he'd made, sort of making this public in the most stupid way possible. And then he fell completely behind everything Benitez did for two years, while Gillette, who was very supportive of Rafa, thought Rafa shouldn't have an entirely free reign and and worked best under the moderating influence of Rick Parry. So, you know, even things like that, who's managing the football club, they were not unified on. So it was it was a mess. They fell out quite early on, basically. They took over the club and then seemingly that was the only thing they did together. They seemed to, as you say, disagree over pretty much everything from that point on, you know, 2007, basically onwards. So how does it work then? Did they have like 50-50 ownership? Like, what's the deal? Like, how do you actually make decisions then if that's the case? Yeah, they co-owned the club and therefore it should have been the relatively simple issue of them making decisions together. But when you aren't working together, you know, they lived thousands of miles apart in America. They weren't in Liverpool a, a huge amount of the time. They had different ambitions in terms of what they thought was the way forward. And obviously the financial crash really impacted, you know, what they could do. Very, very early on, certainly in the summer of 2007 when they bought... Torres and Babel and Yossi Benayoun, you know, everyone thought that they would deliver. And if you search Tom Hicks and mobbed by Liverpool fans, you will find YouTube evidence that very early on, um, you know, they seemed to be going in the right direction. But it wasn't long. It was late that year, 2011, when they decided that they were actually now going to put the debt that they'd acquired onto the books of the club the, the debt that had cost them to buy the club, they decided to put it onto the books of the club and that was something that spelled the beginning of the end. Obviously, they said that they weren't going to take over the club with any debt, which in all intents and purposes, they didn't. Yeah. But then this is a bit like um, Man United where ultimately they can then place this debt on the club, which means that there is you know huge interest payments or the payments that need to happen every single year to obviously pay the debt off. And if we put this in the context of the Glazers takeover of Manchester United in 2005, they had bought the club with the majority of the money they had spent to buy the club, which was a purchase price of £790 million. More than £500 million of that was leveraged debt, which they put onto the club, which meant that Manchester United as an entity was now responsible for paying huge interests on their debts that had been put onto the club that had allowed the Glazers to take control of the club in the first place. You know, it's eye-watering, but now, 15 years later, Manchester United as a football club has spent more than a billion pounds servicing the debts that the Glazers took out to buy the club in the first place. So basically, they used the club's own revenues to buy the club, in effect. And this in the early years of the Glazers' reigns at United was seen as potentially endangering the future of the club because if for whatever reason they didn't refinance the debt or it got out of control or the club didn't do as well on the pitch and therefore stopped earning enough money to pay the debts that could be meltdown. There was real fears in the early years that a leveraged takeout could threaten the future of Manchester United. That didn't happen. But it's in that context that Hicks and Gillette came along promising Liverpool fans that we are not going to do what the Glazers did at Manchester United. I think that's important context. Mm -hmm. A leverage buyout was seen as bad and they said, we're not going to do it. But in effect, what they did is they took over and then by the end of 2007, they decided that they were in fact going to put the debt onto the books. And that's what happened at that point. Do you think they then sort of realised that they'd made a bit of a mistake or they weren't sort of fully bought into 
the fact that they wanted to be totally liable for this. So that's why they then moved it down to the club. Yeah, I mean, they obviously had their own situations because of the crash. They borrowed £185 million from RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, to fund the takeover in the first place. So then just the way they restructured the debt and put it onto the club just went against everything they said. And despite the fact that they were doing okay on the pitch, the debt issue and the restructuring of the debt, along with the fact that they had always been absolutely certain and promising fans that a new stadium was central to taking the club forward and that they promised that the spade would be in the ground next week and and obviously it never happened. They racked up tens of millions of pounds just on designs for a stadium that never actually happened. And when subsequent accounts came out and showed that they spent all this money, it really started to unravel. So their business asset value was declining. That gave them a problem in freeing up cash to put into Liverpool. They couldn't borrow, obviously, because it was very difficult financial circumstances. So that destroyed any chance of getting good value loans for the proposed new stadium. They were, in any case, at loggerheads over the Stanley Park project. Gillette wanted to push forward with the design they had if they could find money, which they couldn't find. Hicks insisted on bringing in his own architects and planners and therefore more costs. So the stadium plans were sort of just in limbo, didn't have funding. So there was no opportunity for naming rights and the other stuff they thought were coming in. In the meantime, they were falling out about who should actually be manager of the club. And Hicks was trying to tap up Jürgen Klinsmann. Interesting names that pop out to me. Obviously, we mentioned a bit about Rick Parry as well. But Christian Perslow comes in as managing director, trying to seek some solutions for them. But is that just all sort of papering over the crack? He's, he's, he's still in the game, isn't he? He's at Aston Villa now. Yes. I think he'd actually obviously been involved and knew about their takeover. You know, He had a relationship with them right from the beginning. And ultimately, he was there and had to sort of help sort out the mess when it all came crashing down in 2010. Well, not crashing down, but sort of reached the point that they couldn't go on. But I think Gillette had realised, even within six months, that buying Liverpool had been an error. He still was thinking that they could get a third person to take some of the burden off them and give them money so that there'd be three owners. But Hicks had a personal valuation of Liverpool. Hicks thought the club was worth around a billion pounds at a time when it definitely wasn't. So he wanted people to pay pro rata that to have a slice of the club. So this Dubai company, he he, he wanted 150 million quid from them to take 15% of stake in the club, which was always ludicrous. So that didn't materialise. I think the idea was if they could get somebody else in to give them money for a bit of the club, that would give them funding to do some of the stuff they wanted to do. But they were really, really unrealistic about what they could actually raise. So they didn't end up with that money, basically. I think you forget with Hicks and Gillette, like, it's only like a two and a half, three year period that this all happened. You know, they took over, obviously, one of the most well-respected clubs in the world. They quickly went, this is a mistake. We can't do the things in which we promised. We're disagreeing on everything. They are potentially at risk of losing money. So where does that put them? What happens? Are they trying to offload it? How do you sort of go about doing that, you know, and and what happened after that point? Well, it it became chaotic because Amanda Staveley came back into the picture and she was talking to Hicks about injecting money. DIC said, we're not paying 150 million quid for 15% of the club. We think the club's worth about 500 million pounds. So they actually made an offer for 500 million pounds early in 2008. Hicks and Gillette thought that the club, although they'd only spent well under that to buy it themselves, they were now saying it was worth a billion pounds. So they could have made the money back? Not just made their money back. They would have walked away with a profit of more than 100 (laughs) million pounds if they'd accepted that DIC offer in early 2008. 
but they had this unrealistic at that point belief that Liverpool was worth a billion quid. So they said no. That's a bit naughty on their on their part, isn't it? Really, because clearly they were not weren't in on it. Hicks said no, and then Gillette went off sort of behind Hicks' back. Remember, they've completely fallen out at this point, and to try and sell his own stake separately. So if we really <laughs> boil it down, it's two thousand and seven. They buy a football club, not leveraged. End of 2007, they basically make it into a leveraged thing by putting a load of debt on the club. They realise they've made a mistake probably by this point. They're arguing about managers, they're arguing about stadiums, they've got different plans, they try to sell bits of the club, they decide they haven't got unity over whether they're going to sell the club or not or whether one of them's going to sell or not. 2008 passes, there's no stadium, no investment. Perslow's managing director by 2009 to try and find solutions to all this. And then... The Bank are desperate, the Royal Bank of Scotland. Again, it's easy to forget that back in 2009-10, when the Royal Bank of Scotland are starting to say there are real problems with how you repay the money that we've lent you to buy the club. And now this is on the club's books. It's a real problem for Liverpool as a football club, not just for the two guys who supposedly bought it with their own money in the first place. A guy called Martin Broughton is bought in at the behest of Royal Bank of Scotland to try and find an owner because it's only going one way and that is down the pan. You'd think that it would be impossible. I mean, now from looking where we're looking for in 2020 with Liverpool as reigning Premier League champions, massively successful, Jurgen Klopp, squad worth thick end of a billion quid, blah, blah, blah. But they could have gone out of business or or certainly gone into administration. It seems absolutely extraordinary, but that's where we were in 2010. And that's because RBS were calling in this loan. Yeah. And it's like, we can't pay it off. Then it's a race to sell the club or it goes into administration, nine point deduction. Absolutely. That's basically where you are. You're potentially going into administration, which would have been just a catastrophe for a club as big as Liverpool that really didn't need to be in that situation. So they said no to Amanda. So then they think, what's the next best thing that we can do? (laughs) I know, we'll have a chat to Kenny from China. Well, this was another extraordinary episode because there were various people involved. I mean, I can't remember all of them now, but I think at one point, Peter Lim, who's a billionaire, you know, RBS were, and Martin Broughton were were desperately scrabbling around. Gillette and Hicks were insisting that they weren't going to sell. I mean, it was extraordinary because they were sort of insisting that that it would be okay. It was a real, you know, house on fire gift type situation. If you imagine (laughs) Hicks and Gillette in a a house on fire saying it will all be fine. And, And the bank and the advisors bought in by the bank are saying, no, you really are you know, going to have to sort this out. I mean, in the end, in effect, they were they were forced out, really. They were forced yeah. to sell the club that they owned and legal wranglings went on for a long time afterwards. I can't remember much about this at the time, but was this being aired in public? With Liverpool fans going, shit, this might be sort of like catastrophe? Absolutely. I mean, it probably was the biggest football business story of that summer. And it was on the news on a daily basis, the sort of crisis of Liverpool and what they were going to do. One of the characters who came forward was a little-known sort of Chinese businessman who at different points had been resident in America as well as China, and he had an office in Hong Kong called Kenny Huang. I mean, I got involved in this because he came forward, he said he was a millionaire, a multimillionaire, a billionaire. He had a sort of spokesman called Mark Gannis, an American guy who had one of the worst wigs I've ever seen <laughs> and one of the worst sales patterns to go with it. And Kenny Huang, I instantly sort of thought, this guy's claims don't stack up. 
but he did have various associates in business, particularly in Hong Kong, people who were wealthy. And he absolutely convinced certainly a, a section of Liverpool supporters, some bankers, an RBS, that if, if he himself didn't have the money, then he would be able to put together a package um, and become the owner of Liverpool Football Club. And this was a really, really, really murky episode because ultimately he didn't come through. And, and I was of the firm belief that he never would come through because I did an investigation over a number of months into sort of some of the claims that he was making. I mean, he claimed, for example, that he was the first Chinese-born person to work on the floor of the um, New York Stock Exchange, which just seemed like a completely unprovable claim. (laughs) He said that he was one of China's largest philanthropists. And again, just vague claims. More concretely, he claimed that he owned 15% of the Cleveland Cavaliers NBA team, you know, which should be a fairly easy thing to find out whether it's true or not. And, And it wasn't true, but it didn't stop some big publications, particularly in America, repeat claims made on his behalf, that he was a billionaire, that he owned a basketball team in China, that he was on the board of directors of China's fourth largest bank, that he had three degrees in business um, from some of New York's most prestigious universities. So I, I had some decent contacts in Chinese business, and they told me they'd never heard of him. And one by one, I sort of went and checked out these claims, and it takes quite a lot of work. But basically, you know, I did get the MBA um, to release an official statement saying that Kenny Huang didn't have and never had had any ownership stake in any MBA team. I mean, it was wow. just false. I eventually got the bank this Chinese bank to say that Kenny Huang wasn't and never had been a board director or involved with this bank. The universities, again, checking out someone's background, it's not as simple as you might think. You can't just ring up and say, was this guy a student? You have to make all sorts of formal applications to go through all, jump through all sorts of hoops. But again, I came back, he'd never, he had enrolled in one of the universities and dropped out after three months and had never been to either of the other universities that he claimed degrees from. I was writing stories about him on Sporting Intelligence and somebody came to me um, from America and said, this guy's a con man. He's actually stood trial in America for embezzlement. So this sort of former business partner of him had sued him in civil court in America for embezzlement. And he actually won that case But he won it because the judge believed all the claims that he made in the court case, including that he was the owner of an NBA team, that he was a billionaire, that he was a a board director of a bank. And those claims had never been tested. But crucially for me, I actually managed to get my hands on a transcript of his embezzlement trial where he basically perjured himself. And he couldn't then say someone else was making these claims on behalf. I've never claimed this. I now had a transcript of him in his own words claiming these things, which I then subsequently proved to be lies. And when I eventually, after weeks, months of gathering this information, took it to his PR guy and said, look, (laughs) the guy's a liar. He withdrew from the process, but not before a story had appeared on the front page of the Times, not on the front page of the sports section, on the front page of the Times newspaper, declaring that the Chinese government were going to buy Liverpool Football Club with Kenny Huang as their sort of front man. And again, it, it wasn't true. But that's that was the kind of thing that was happening behind the scenes. There's one thing, you know, sort of uh, massaging your CV, you know, making a few claims. I only did Duke of Edinburgh bronze, but I said I did gold. There's, you know, claims that we make, but he's sort of gone through and is basically just conning people to believe that he's some sort of um, huge deal across sport, across business. And 
it's all a big lie. And you, Nick, then, fair to say, helped Liverpool avoid a bit of a near miss, perhaps. The RBS was sort of, they obviously weren't certain about him. Um, and at one point, one of the people who was working with RBS, one of the banking sort of advisors, they'd seen this stuff on Sporting Intelligence, actually, actually phoned me up to ask me what background I had on Kenny Huang because they were finding it very, very hard to get reliable due diligence. And I said, well, look, this is what I'm finding. This is what I found. And and ultimately, I, you know, I did this big sort of expose and I even published the transcript from his embezzlement case on the website. There's this a, a thing called the Huran Philanthropy List, which actually lists China's 100 biggest philanthropists each year. And I got somebody to find a copy of the one for that year and got a Chinese friend of mine to translate it. You know, obviously he didn't appear anywhere on this list. He wasn't a philanthropist. He wasn't who he said he was. And when ultimately he was confronted with the fact that I was going to expose him, he pulled out. But again, just to give a taste of, of how important this stuff is to fans, a large amount of Liverpool fans thought that Kenny Huang was the saviour they needed, that he was going to come in with the Chinese government and get rid of the hated Hicks and Gillette. There's, um, you know, like a lot of fairly rabid fan forums, um, you know, some of the Liverpool fan forums were doing a, a number on me and on Sporting Intelligence every day as questioning my motivation, saying that I must be acting for another bidder. Why was I questioning Kenny Huang's credentials? I mean, I got an absolute monstering from a lot of Liverpool fans that summer. And ultimately, Kenny Huang pulled out. And I think that's probably the best evidence of, of, of how genuine he really was. I mean, if he was genuine and had the access to the money that could have made the deal happen, he didn't do it just because a Sporting Intelligence website said that he was a liar. I mean, I suspect he did it because he didn't really have the wherewithal. The alternative theory is that he was trying to get put into sort of prime bidder territory, get the go-ahead to put together a package and then maybe try and do a reverse deal. So, So in other words, be given the status of prime bidder and then try and go and raise the money. Maybe that's what he was trying to do. But the fact is, once he was exposed, he pulled out and and that paved the way. Then in a frantic few weeks. Uh, for John W. Henry and the Fenway Sports Group to come along and buy Liverpool. I think it was the package in the end was £300 million to buy the club. So they should have gone with the DIC, the Dubai Well, of offer. course, Hicks and Gillette should have, should have gone with £500 million offer from DIC if they wanted to get out and keep money. In the end, I think they didn't get much because... RBS needed their money back and and I think they made a loss on the deal and they ended up suing um, Fenway Sports Group and it all got very, very acrimonious. But the bottom line was 10 years ago in the summer of 2020, Fenway Sports Group came in, took ownership of Liverpool. They already owned the Boston Red Sox, of course, and some other sports assets, a TV station, a, a NASCAR racing team. They obviously knew what they were doing in terms of sports business and sports marketing. And, and although it took them a while to get there, to get everything in place, to get the right manager, they are where they are now, which is owners of the current reigning Premier League champions. Just before we get on to the positivity, uh, do you know the whereabouts of Kenny now? No, I, I don't actually. I From time to time, I look and see what he's doing. And at one point he was running a DVD rental business. Nice. Good, good for this time of year. And he occasionally pops up related to sort of sports ventures. A few, maybe a year or two after Liverpool, he was, the Italian press were full of reports that he was going to buy into Milan. And it was reported that a Kenny Huang-led consortium was going to buy into Milan. Did that happen? No, it didn't. Again, maybe maybe you could court him to, to the Blues, Will. 
I mean, he conned enough people into believing. Even now you can Google articles that he's a billionaire Chinese businessman and a sports entrepreneur and all this stuff. There's still a lot of stuff out there that he wants owned the Cleveland Cavaliers and blah, blah, blah. But he managed to get himself onto a panel at one of the big sports conferences. And he was one of the guests in late 2010 of a group of 15, 20 other journalists, you know, heard that he was there and we went along to ask him questions about what what are you doing because I think he was still making noises that one day he'd like to get into football and he might try another club um, but once he saw that there's a sort of press pack waiting to ask him questions I mean it was hilarious he literally fled he ran down a corridor so you've got this bloke he was running down a corridor of a hotel of a park lane hotel being literally chased by 15 journalists saying Kenny whatever happened to your Liverpool <laughs> ambitions and he locked himself in the toilet and then went out via a fire escape I mean that's the last time I saw Kenny <laughs> fleeing down a fire escape of a Park Lane hotel that's incredible that's brilliant um so we move on obviously to John W Henry's takeover I think it almost speaks for itself doesn't it the, the transformation that they've done around there on and off the pitch done a great job haven't they to be fair, yeah, to be fair, there's the greatest of jobs that he can do: Champions League, Premier League. But I think the topic that we'd like to move on more present day is uh, what's come out recently as the time of recording is the the project big picture. Obviously, uh, John Henry and the Glazers, obviously at the helm of this. But it's just such a a huge debate going on right now, Nick. And just wanted to well start with your thoughts, really. Yeah, so this was revealed by uh, Sam Wallace of the Sunday Telegraph. Great scoop from Sam to reveal the existence of this thing, Project Big Picture, which was apparently been put together over a number of years by John Henry of Liverpool and Joel Glazer and the Glazer family who own Manchester United without the knowledge of anybody else, even the other big teams. The headline of it is they want to uh, sort of revitalise English football, uh, hand the Football League a 250 million bailout COVID package, give them 25% of future revenues of the Premier League. In exchange for this, they want to restructure the Premier League, take it down to 18 teams from 20. They want to rechange the voting rights so instead of the 20 clubs getting an equal vote on key issues. They want to change it so that uh, only nine clubs vote on key issues and the big six, as we know, as we call them now, plus three other clubs would be the nine clubs who'd vote on the key issues and a, a, a majority of six would be needed instead of a majority of 14 now and a majority of six, handily enough, equates to the big six. So that looked like a stitch up. Obviously, it's been the talk of people pulling apart this deal, discussing whether it's good or bad for the game and it looks on the face of it like just a power grab by the big clubs to guarantee themselves all the power in the future. And therefore, with the power, they would be able to make decisions that would also hand them more of the money. So this is something that, although it's dead in the water for now, the Premier League clubs have all voted not to take it forward. Um, a lot of the issues within the plan are going to come back, like will clubs sell a some of their games direct to fans or direct to overseas fans in the future. What will happen to the 20 clubs in the Premier League? Will it always stay a 20 club league? You know, what will happen in the future for redistribution of TV money? Is there a, a more sensible way to distribute money? Should there be salary caps? All sorts of these issues. They're not going away, but suffice to say, John Henry and the Glazers have not covered themselves in glory in the view of many, many football fans who've heard about Project Big Picture in the recent weeks. How dead do you think it is based on, you know, obviously it being voted against, but 
like you say, with the sort of pedigree of the clubs involved at the top, particularly, you know, arguably the two biggest clubs in, in the country, Liverpool and, and United, surely this is kind of just the opener for this conversation and, and, and ultimately how they gain more, more power going forward. They won't necessarily be unhappy that the debate started because they want to do some of these things. And it's inevitable at some point, I think, that the pressures will grow to allow clubs to sell games some of their games directly which is potentially very profitable for the biggest clubs although there are obviously drawbacks and caveats to that there's obviously big costs involved once you start selling direct fans as well as potentially big profits whether that happens in three years or ten years you know the media landscape is changing rapidly and dramatically the big clubs in Europe obviously over 20 years have been putting increasing pressure on UEFA to give them more money and more Champions League games and that's what they've had. They've succeeded in getting that with the threat of a breakaway Super League. They've managed to get more and more share of more Champions League money and they will continue to threaten a Super League to get more and more still, I'm sure. To a similar extent, I think the same thing will happen in the Premier League. The big clubs will increasingly demand stuff and threaten stuff. And football does need a reboot in England. The Championship is a financial basket case. Clubs spend on wages alone, 107% of their income. That means they spend more money just on wages, never mind transfer fees and their other running costs. They spend more on player wages than they have income. I mean, it's completely unsustainable. League One and League Two have now got salary caps coming in. That might be a bit more sensible, but in the age of COVID, some of those clubs will go out of business or potentially would go out of business if they don't get fans back in. Um, The Premier League have promised they won't let any club go out of business And just for my money, I do actually believe the Premier League on that element of it. I do think they are sincere. They could bail out the two bottom divisions for about 50 million quid. If there was actually a club that just for COVID reasons were going to go under, I do think the Premier League probably will um, stop that happening. Um, But there are big problems, there's big inequalities, and these issues aren't going to go away. So Project Big Picture may be dead, but there's some serious issues that need to be addressed. I think I was just worried because the rich are only going to get richer and the problems are only going to carry on for the, the teams in the in the EFL. And I, I just think the urgency for the um, owners in the EFL to sort of like back the deal from Rick Parry just shows like where the problems come with it because even the owners of the clubs currently really don't have the long-term resources and sort of the, like, the outlooks for the team as well. It's the fans that are like, you know, there from start to finish. Like The championship financially is a mess, but it's full of clubs who are aiming for one thing and that is a place in the yeah. Premier League. Yeah. And the reason they're doing that is because the income inequality is so massive that a season in the Premier League guarantees you at least 120 million quid. It's the gamble factor. And if you look at the sort of people who own clubs in the championship, there's a lot of billionaires owning clubs these are rich people already and they think that once they get into the Premier League and have a club in the Premier League they'll have an asset that's worth even more so there's a lot of billionaires gambling on getting into the Premier League but at the same time they're losing lots of money and and you can only have a financial arms race for so long before the thing just collapses and 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 it doesn't work any longer so there are issues that have got to be addressed. I saw Gary Neville was sort of proposing a new independent regulatory. Thank you, Richard. An independent regulator, yeah. Well, I've been working, you know, writing about football, football business, national newspapers for 25 years. And we've been calls for an independent regulator in football for all that time. I mean, I remember when Tony Blair's Labour Party came to power in 97, 
they were very big on football. I don't know if you two can remember, you might be too young to remember Tony Blair and Kevin Keegan. New Labour were very big on, we're going to sort football out. And there was a proposal for regulation. Of course, it never happened and it's never happened since. So yes, Gary, Gary Neville is right. Football could really do with an independent regulator, but fans groups have been calling for one for decades and no government has actually um, ever sort of followed through and, and made it happen. So, uh, you know, I won't hold my breath on that. So thank you very much for listening today. Please leave us a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Why not recommend us to a friend? And while you're at it, give us a follow on Sporf on Twitter. And if you want to follow more from Nick Harris and all his amazing work, follow at Sport and Intel. This has been Football Uncovered. Thank you for listening and goodbye.